Hello, listeners, book lovers, and friends. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host and producer of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. So why create a podcast about the first page? Well, all master storytellers have a secret. Their first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader, hooking you. And for those of us intrigued by how master storytellers work their magic, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to the world's most beloved authors about the craft. And today on episode 11, we have the great honor of talking with one of the world's best-selling masters of suspense, Dean Kuntz, about his latest novel, Quicksilver, published by Thomas and Mercer, January 25th. For most of you listening, Dean Kuntz has been a household name for as long as we can remember. He is one of the world's most prolific writers, having written more than 100 books and aiming to beat Henry James' track record of 120 in his lifetime. His books are published in 38 languages, and he has sold more than 500 million copies to date. We're going to talk about that endurance sport later. But first, I'd like to share a little bit more of Dean's background to give you a quick snapshot of the extraordinary arc of his career as a writer. If you love to read suspense novels, or perhaps if you're courageous enough to write one, listen up and take a page from this master. Kuntz is the author of 79 New York Times bestsellers and is one of 12 writers ever to have 14 of these books rise to number one on the hardcover bestseller list. If that's not impressive, 16 of his books have risen to the number one position in paperback. His books have also been bestsellers in Japan and Sweden, and he has been hailed by Rolling Stone magazine as America's most popular suspense novelist. Dean is also a huge dog lover and is originally from Pennsylvania. He currently lives in Southern California with his wife, Gerda, and their golden retriever, Elsa, and the enduring spirit of their goldens, Trixie and Anna. And you can find his website at www.deankoons.com, and I'll provide some other social links on the episode notes. Dean Koontz, welcome to page one. Thanks for having me there. It's such a delight to have you here with us today. And I know our listeners are eager to learn from you. So let's jump into your latest novel, Quicksilver, that's now available in bookstores, libraries, and of course on Amazon. And because we avoid all spoilers on page one, if it's okay with you, I'm going to share your book summary for listeners. Is that all right? Sure. Okay, great. Quinn Quicksilver was born a mystery, abandoned at three days old on a desert highway in Arizona, raised in an orphanage, never knowing his parents. Quinn had a happy, unexceptional life until the day of strange magnetism. It compelled him to drive out to the middle of nowhere. It helped him find a coin worth a lot of money, and it practically saved his life when two government agents showed up in the diner in pursuit of him. Now Quinn is on the run from those agents and who knows what else fleeing for his life. During a shootout at a forlorn dude ranch, he finally meets his destined companions, Bridget Ranking, a beauty as gifted in foresight as she is with firearms, and her grandpa Sparky, a romance novelist with an unusual past. Bridget knows what it's like to be Quinn. She's hunted too. And the only way to stay alive is to keep moving. Barreling through the Sonoran Desert, the formidable trio is impelled by that same inexplicable magnetism towards the inevitable. With every deeply disturbing mile, something sinister is in the rear view, an enemy that is more than a match for Quinn, even as he discovers within himself resources that are every bit as scary. Okay, I'm hooked. Let's go on this journey. Do you write your own book summaries? I have approval. Let's say that way. So sometimes you get in there. Okay, because it has so much of the Kuntz voice. There's something fun in this. There's a music that we're going to talk about later, just the musicality and rhythm of your style. Will you go ahead and please read the first manuscript page of Quicksilver? Okay. My name is Quinn Quicksilver, or QQ, to the mean kids when I was growing up. But I can't blame my parents because I don't know who they are. Soon after birth, I was abandoned on a lonely highway, seven miles outside of Pepto, Arizona, where 906 people pretended that the place where they lived was actually a town. Swaddled in a blue blanket, nestled in a white bassinet made of plastic thatching, I had been placed 
on the centermost three lanes of blacktop, where I was found shortly after dawn. Although you might think this was about as bad a start in life as one could have, I assure you it could have been worse. For one thing, this was coyote country. Had one of those creatures found me, it wouldn't have suckled me as did the wolf that saved abandoned Romulus, the founder of Rome, but instead would have regarded me as a grub hub delivery. I could have also been run over by an 18-wheeler and turned into pate for vultures. Fortunately, I was found by three men on their way to work. The first, Hakim Kaspar, was a lineman for the county, as in that Glenn Campbell song, I've always found lovely but weird. Though at the time, I was discovered on the highway, I hadn't yet heard it. The second, Bailey Belshazzar, worked as a head mechanic at one of the country's first wind farms. The third, Cesar Melchizedek, was a blackjack pit boss in an Indian casino. According to a newspaper story at the time, Hakim tucked me snugly in the passenger side footwell of his electric company truck and drove me to the county sheriff's office with Bailey and Cesar following in their vehicles. Why they felt it necessary that all three should turn me into the law, the newspaper didn't say. This was all I knew of these men until, years later and running for my life, I visited one of them with hope of learning some small detail that might be a clue as to who and what I am. That is great. And I have so many questions about this. Is this the actual first page that you wrote? I mean, was this the portal? Was that first sentence there when you started? I work around with it. I rewrite a page 20 or 30 times. But yes, that was pretty much the beginning. I knew I was opening with his voice and that he would start telling you how he was born and then jump to 19 years later and where he is in life. So that was pretty much exactly what it was. A little word or two changes that went through revisions. When do you hear the voices for these characters? Because, you know, my name is Quinn Quicksilver or QQ to the mean kids when I was growing up. It's like he came to visit you and told you that. And then you write that down. Well, I never get that voice until I'm actually sitting at the keyboard. In the case of this novel, the the original impetus for it, the first little spark was, uh, I don't know why these things happen. I don't know where they come from. But I had this image come into my head of a lonely desert highway and sitting in the middle of it was a little white bassinet with a baby in it. And I thought, hmm, there's, when these things hit you, these strange little thoughts and images, think, okay, that sounds like the start of a novel. Now, what happens next? And that's sort of how it starts with me. The character is almost everything in the novel. So especially in the first page, you really want to capture the reader. You want the reader to hear that character. If it's being told in first person, that becomes somewhat easier. And this was a book I knew had to be in first person. So then it's what tone does he take? What is he like? I knew that he was going to have a sort of humorous edge to him that he had had a hard beginning in life, but it didn't wreck him. And instead, sort of like me, he always found the humor in all the darkness of life. And that that would be the key thing about him that propels us forward with it. And that has to come out real strongly in the first page. I had a little giggle when I first read this. And the giggle was in whoever wrote that summary for your book, they clearly are weaving in kind of that humor And the reason that I have a giggle is knowing that you are getting us to a place of darkness, right? And you know that you have all these fans who are relying on you for the suspense that they want and they need, but you're bringing us in through this kid and you're setting us up so that we have compassion for him, but we also feel that we can relate to him. We also feel right away that we can kind of trust him this first line where it says, my name is Quinn Quicksilver or QQ to the mean kids when I was growing up, but I can't blame my parents because I don't know who they are. And right away, you feel for him in that line. And I was just wondering how, I know you, you said you rewrote this page 30 times, but is that an actual number or do you know that you rewrote it 30 times? And <laughs> I rewrite every page anywhere between 10 and 30 times. 
it may even go beyond 30 sometimes because computers allow you to do what in the day of manual typewriters that you never could have done as much revision and still delivered books as regularly as you can now. So I take advantage of that fact with computers and it gets a lot of uh, smoothing uh, over and over again. And that line, I can't blame my parents because I don't know who they are. We want to figure out what happened to him in the past. Clearly, he is growing up in a world where obviously there is darkness. And at some point, I want to circle back to that because when you say you drew from that, I think it's seminal to so much of your work. You're bringing that part of your life into all these stories. One of the key things I think about making a character appealing is early on, if possible, on that first page. Give us a sense that there is something vulnerable about him. I don't mean make him a victim. I don't mean let him whine about anything. In fact, Quinn would never whine. He is not that type of person. But because of his story, you know, he doesn't know who his parents are. They're abandoned at three. There is immediately we sense that there will be a vulnerability to him. He's not going to be a superhero. He's not going to be anybody like Jason Bourne who can, you know, kick through walls. He's not James Bond. There's a hole in his life and in his heart, and that's going to make him in some degree vulnerable. Now, he's he's not, as I said, not a whiner, and he becomes more and more competent as the story goes. He's got this aspect that makes him, I think, appealing to us. My own background is not that I didn't know who my parents were. My my mom was a great person, but very sickly most of her life, trapped in a terrible marriage to a man who was drunk most of the time, held 44 jobs in 34 years, often punched out the boss, was often talking about suicide. He had two brothers who committed suicide in the family. And when he would talk about it, I can remember even being seven, eight years old. Something had gone wrong yet again. He had lost another job. And he would say, I should probably just kill myself. I should kill all of us. It would be easier for us. I never knew whether that was something he could do or uh, or whether he couldn't. And he lived with the idea that probably he could. Later in life, he was diagnosed first as a borderline schizophrenic with tendencies to violence complicated by alcoholism. This was after I had taken over support of him and moved him to California. And then his behavior got worse and worse. And eventually, after he'd been in and out of psych wards twice, he was the second time diagnosed as sociopathic, which really opened my eyes to what had really been going on in my childhood. Because sociopaths are superb at faking all kind of human feeling but they actually don't have it. That was my father. And so as a consequence, I tend to write about people whose, you know, it was years before I realized I was doing this. My lead characters very often have no family or they have a broken family. In the course of the story, they put together a family from strangers. And that is certainly part of what happens in this. And it's something that I draw upon from my own past frequently. I had this sense when I was reading this, I wanted to ask you, it might just be coincidental, but these three men that find him, it reminds me, it's very biblical, like the three wise Mm -hmm. men, even their names. We definitely get that sense that he's creating a family out of strangers. Was there any coincidence there? Or was that, were you playing with that as well? I played, there are the names of the three wise men, except I've changed a little bit. And I've given them first names because, uh, well, I've given them two names instead of just one. I'd say about 40% of my books have no element of supernatural or no element of science fiction. But then the other 60% do that. But I rarely, maybe never before, went into an actual fantasy as I have in this. And I knew there was a sort of fantasy behind all of this. The book talks about a first universe and so forth. When you're trying to write something that conveys to the reader a sort of fantasy world that's behind this or a sort of mythos that's behind it, it's very helpful to 
make it allegorical, to draw the reader subtly. Now, a lot of people won't recognize those names, but on some deeper level, they do. And to reference mythologies or faiths that people are familiar with, it helps to build the reality of this fantasy element that you've got in there. Now, Quinn isn't Jesus by any means, but he is somebody special. And he's going to find out that the way he's special will shape the rest of his life. And so I wanted to get the reader into that feeling, even if only subconsciously, as soon as possible. You do such a good job of establishing that. I mean, that voice of him kind of being an everyday person, and yet he's not a martyr. He even says in that second paragraph, although you might think that this was about as bad a start in life as one could have, I assure you it could have been worse. And then mm-hmm. the joke about being run over by an 18-wheeler and turned into a pate for vultures, right? Which is, <laughs> which is funny. I am also curious too, when you talk about this world the fantasy that's in this book, was that something that came to you first? I'm just curious about the concept and the hook of the story, how it came to you. I didn't know exactly how I was going to portray and say, eventually it said our world is the second universe. It was a first universe and everything went very badly with that. And the people, the creatures at the peak of that world, the humans at the peak of it went very, very bad. And that sort of plays in biblical thinking also. But I didn't want it to be a biblical story in that sense. I just wanted to reference mythologies. We dance around like all kinds of things in this book. And that purpose of all that is just when it gets to this character, Miss Chin, who shows up later in the story, she's something of a seer who is able to explain things to them. I had to start thinking about what she would say that I began to pull all these elements together. Sometimes you find your own way through it. I don't work out anything before I begin. I didn't sit down to say, okay, but what is behind all of this? It just happened in pieces as I went. The biggest first piece is of the mythos is when they go into that truck stop to have dinner is on the road with Bridget and her grandfather, Sparky. They go into that restaurant and something horrific is about to happen. And that's where you first see these mythological creatures that they call screamers. So it falls together as you write it. I know some writers have to get it all together before they begin out of fear that they may not be able to figure it out. I've learned over the years that you will be able to figure it out if you have enough faith in the story you're telling. It will pull itself together in ways you will be surprised about. Will you tell us a little more about that? Because that's a gut instinct that you obviously develop over the course of many, many hours sitting there writing and starting to trust the moments where you're stuck, where you know, okay, I'm in an eddy, but if I keep typing, I'll get out of it at some point. I understand trusting the process, but don't you have to have enough faith in the concept and the idea itself to go, okay, I might not know how these things connect, but I'll figure it out. But How do you know that you've got enough? Is it a somatic experience for you? You know, I don't know how you know you've got enough. Sometimes you don't. Uh, Sometimes you get into it a ways and think, where is this story going to go that's going to be novel-like? And then you have to stop and pause and think, okay, I just simply have to take a moment to think, what's the end point of this? Maybe not the explanation of everything, but where does this arc take them. Where do you see they're going to be in the end? I just delivered a book that I think is among the best things I've done. It's set on an island where a woman lives alone. She has retreated from a great tragedy in her life and is trying to stay sane and alive and regain her stability. So she's living on this island. And of course, On a neighboring island, something very bad happens. And her island, which is a retreat, comes the worst place in the world to be. And I knew what was going on on that other island. But could I make a full novel about it? And at some point early on in it, I had to stop and think, no, I'm not quite so sure that I can get her to 100,000 words or whatever and keep the momentum and pace what it needs to be just on this. So I had to stop and think, okay, when all the things that are happening to her on this island, and 
government agents can afford looking for something on that island that they won't even tell her what it is that it escaped from the island where this government facility is. And then when she finds out these very bad agents are the least of her troubles and that there's something worse on the island, then you know where that is going to some extent, or I do as a writer. But I could see that as I was writing, probably the story can't end when you think it does. When you think she has conquered this moment and this threat and she's beaten it, that is not going to be the end. And that means you're going to have to be some twists that you're not seeing coming so that the story goes on past the island at some point. As soon as I understood that, and I didn't care what happened after the island, I just knew it was going to go somewhere. And as I write, I will start to prep that. And it won't always be conscious prepping. Sometimes it's just those things your subconscious brings you to. Oftentimes you say, wait a minute, is that something I should really put in the story? And instead of doubting it, you have to stop and think about it. Why did this come out of my subconscious? Why did I decide to give this twist? And if you think it through, you'll begin to see why that, in essence, makes our story continue after the island. I have just found thinking it through too much constricts you and having faith in the concept will see you through. In the case of Quinn, there is one thing that happens. Quinn says early on in Quicksilver that he lets you know that he was essentially not wanted when he came into this world. He was abandoned on the highway at three days of age, came into an orphanage, and he learned pretty early on nobody would adopt him. And later to get some sense of maybe why, because he is special and some people detected that and uh, were daunted by it. He also lets you know early on the story that for this guy abandoned on highway when he was born and nobody wanted, now everybody is after him. Every law enforcement agent in the country wants him. Well, what is that about? And I knew early on what that was about. And it's a lot of fun. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, yeah. as to exactly what he did or has done has led to this. At that point, you say, okay, this is cool. This is a good story, but where is it going? In this particular case, I could say, I don't always know how helpful this is to younger writers, but in this case, I had to say to myself, what kind of story is this? And what it is, is a picaresque novel. It's an author on a journey who's going to meet a lot of strange people in the course of it. And it's not that all those people stay in the story. In a picaresque novel, he's on his way to some discovery about himself. And he's also just meeting a lot of colorful people who come and go. And the moment I understood that was the shape of the novel... I didn't worry about whether it had 100,000 words, because in a picaresque novel, you're going to be constantly bringing in new and interesting people. They're out in the middle of the desert in the middle of this book, and they're on the run, and they're on a very lonely road. And they come across this sign that they have come to, they, what do I call it, the autonomous zone of Beebs. And it's some guy named Wallace Beebs who has declared this place he lives in as an autonomous zone where the laws of the United States don't apply. And that character is a lot of fun, but it also advances the story very significantly. But he only lasts for two chapters. In a picaresque novel, you'll never run out of characters to pull in and moments to have. So in that case, I had confidence in where this novel was enough to get you there. Not all novels allow you that way to proceed. So to a degree, it's just intuition and you develop it the more you write, I think. I also find it really interesting as you were talking about this, we know that you're establishing at the beginning that Quinn was completely abandoned. No one wanted him. No one wanted to adopt him. And then you have this complete polarity where everyone is after him. They don't want him for the good reasons that you would hope as a child. So you're working with those great contrasts, which add that tension And inside that tension, I think, is where the shape of the story starts to take place. Exactly. What you want to do in that first page, if at all possible, is raise multiple questions in the reader's mind. Now, right away, why was Quinn abandoned? Who are his parents? Why would nobody adopt him? 
why does he have this attitude that he has that seems sort of carefree in spite of what he's gone through? When you've established questions like that, you've established more and more reasons for the reader to be compelled to commend it. Then it's a matter that you're going to have to always be upping the ante as you go. You have to give readers moments to take a breath, but you also want to keep raising the stakes and everything as you go, chapter by chapter. Also, proceeding this way, without having decided everything in advance, you come into a lot of just lovely moments that you couldn't have planned. I couldn't have planned that after Quinn finds that coin that you mentioned reading the summary in the desert, and suddenly, I, this is not much of a spoiler, he thinks it might be worth something, and it was drawn there by the strange compulsion to go there. And he found it. He had been there once before, and he found it. Now he takes it to this elderly man who runs an antique shop to find out what it's worth. Well, he gets paid $30,000 for it, which to Quinn is more money than he ever knew existed. So now he's on a very mysterious path with this ability that he has. He doesn't understand it, and you don't yet know it is an ability. But if I planned it out, something I doubt I would have planned was that he would go to a diner the next day or a couple of days later, and it would be there in the diner among friends that these federal agents show up, even though I wrote it. I have to think that scene where he's sitting at the counter and the federal agents come up and sit beside him, one on each side, and he immediately knows this isn't good. And the scene evolves. It's suspenseful, but it's funny. And when he bursts out of that place into the alleyway, you get this moment where he has to escape these people, and the only vehicle is this dry cleaner's truck. And he knows the guy who delivers the dry cleaner. It frees you up to have these odd moments if you don't plan it out. And that moment had me laughing out loud because I thought, okay, it's a dry cleaner. And I knew that it was going to be a little backstory. It's important in novels. When you get a character like this dry cleaner truck driver who rescues him and drives him away, is not a character you're going to see again, but you want to know something about that character. In a novel that has texture and depth, you want to know enough about that character. That doesn't mean what he looks like necessarily. It means something fun or interesting in his background. And you get it with this character. If anybody wants to read how that is done, the best way I know how to do it, that sequence where Quinn is in that truck being driven to someplace he's safe. Everything matters then because the guy driving the truck, you got to get to know very quickly. You can't spend a lot of pages. I don't mean you stop and tell his backstory. It comes out in Quinn's point of view. And then it allows you moments. What I love particularly was I thought, well, who owns this dry cleaner? And it turns out to be this Vietnamese immigrant who named the dry cleaner Dirty Harry Clean Now. I uh, laughed. I laughed <laughs> when I read that. I just thought Dean was having a lot of fun right I here. was having fun. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that came into my head. Those little details don't come to you, I think, if you plan it out too much in advance. And they add a realistic depth to things that make it fun to read and make all the walk-on characters more than walk-ons, they become real people. Especially in that picaresque novel and how you're describing it, so many of those scenes work to reveal something about your protagonist. How many of your other books are like this, where you just have to stumble into a place in the moment and something magical might happen, but you can't even possibly try to conceive of that prior to just getting inside the scene and being in the scene almost holographically. It's not about a two-dimensional thing. It's about inhabiting that space and really divesting yourself of this other reality to be inside that story in such a way that those people become so real to you. And yes, they might not come back. That character is potentially a one-off, but it wasn't a one-off in that it didn't serve your main character because we learned so much about Quinn in his response. The thing about character, I think, of revealing character is it's a mistake to do blocks of prose that tell all of his past that go on and on. That can glaze the eyes of the reader. The way to reveal character is dialogue. How a character speaks, how he thinks, 
because how he thinks shapes what he says, reveals stuff without you having to tell the reader that about it. They see it in how he reacts to people. In that sequence, the very fact that he goes out of this diner and he knows the cooks, he knows everybody, that tells you something about Quinn. And they all like him. They step in to stop these agents from arresting him in very interesting and amusing ways. But when you're thinking about painting a character, you also do it not just in the dialogue, but this is something I've over the years had some trouble explaining. There are writers who don't do this and still can succeed, but most writers who succeed understand this. When you're in a scene with a writer or with a character, you should always think that everything you're telling the reader, everything the reader sees or hears or thinks about what they're seeing or hearing is coming through the character who is central to that scene. That character, when you go to this next character, they see things different than another character does. But more than that, when you're in the scene, you never should say what another character is thinking because you're in the mind of one character in that scene. And they may speculate on what other characters are thinking. But once you go into two points of view in the scene, you've lost a sense of reality. You're now playing God that you know what everybody is thinking and what is about that. You lose the Mm -hmm. intimacy that you've just been building and working so hard to establish. And we don't want to be jettisoned out of that body that we've just inhabited, right? We want to stay there. And it's such an easy temptation. It's such an easy slip to shift to that other point of view. And yet it's a real discipline to hold the center of a scene through that viewpoint character. How did you develop that ability? I think it was how much I read in the early years. I was an English major. I had creative writing courses. None of them ever taught me anything I needed to know. There are writing courses that can teach you that. But sometimes when you get them through a university program, there's a certain attitude and certain kind of fiction is thought worthy and other kinds aren't. And that can color a lot about what you're getting out. So I think I got it from a lot of reading. When I started out, my wife and I didn't have a TV set for eight or 10 years. The first few years, we couldn't afford one. Then after that, we decided we just didn't want one. And then there was no social media. So we had not that temptation. So we read each of us up to as many as 200 books a year. Because every evening we sat and read in two different armchairs. And if we loved the book, we'd swap it back and forth. That's like four books a week. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But if you're reading eight or nine hours a day, it's surprising how much you can get, especially after she was able to quit work and go to work for me. We could even read more than that during a day, more than eight hours a day, seven days a week. And we were mostly reading. In those days, most popular novels were shorter. I mean, you had your Irving Wallace's and so there were these giant books. But 90% of what published was 60 to 75,000 words. You're listening to the Page One podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. As the author of four novels and a writing coach, I know that the first page of any book has to work so hard to do so much. Hook the reader. So I thought to ask your favorite master storytellers how they do their magic to hook you. I started the podcast this past spring, and after the first few episodes, it occurred to me that maybe someone listening might be curious about how their first page sits with an audience. Writing takes courage, and courage needs a community. So I'm opening up the podcast to any writer who wants to submit the first page of a book they're currently writing. If your page is chosen, you'll be invited onto the show to read it and get live feedback from one of Page One's master storytellers. I'm so excited about this. I love when there's a chance for a new author to get discovered. And Page One exists to inspire, celebrate, and promote the work of both a known and unknown creative talent. Maybe that's you. If this excites you, please submit your page at hollylynnpayne.com backslash community. That's hollylynnpayne, H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E.com backslash community. And now back to the show. 
I can remember when I got out of college and I was struggling to be a writer and I was teaching school and I found the writer John D. McDonald. The first one I loved so much. I read 34 John D. McDonald novels in 30 days. <laughs> then I wrote a novel and it was so like John D. McDonald, it was embarrassing. I had to destroy it because it's so saturated in my head. But one thing I think I learned from McDonald was that exact thing, how he told these vibrant, exciting stories. And even the ones that had multiple viewpoints, you were always locked into one viewpoint, one scene. And I think it was just reading so much of a writer who was so good about everything in such a compressed period of time that I was learning things and not really quite understanding that I was learning so I think there's a great value to reading intensely when you're beginning a career. I know writers who say, I don't want to read too much because I don't want anybody else's style influencing me. And I've said to them, you know what? The less you read, the more one of those styles will influence you. The more you read, the more styles are coming at you and the more likely you're going to borrow from them. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to something that you bring up in the beginning of this book. You dedicate it to the memory of four writers who pumped up your imagination. And you say in wildly different ways during the years that you suffered through grades seven through 12. So I too remember suffering through those grades. But I'm curious, you mentioned Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, Theodore Sturgeon, and Jack Douglas. And I know that Ray Bradbury had a huge influence on your writing. How were these writers, your first teachers, really, aside from what you just mentioned, in learning how to establish character and how to stay within point of view and drawing people to the edge. Let's pause there and back up to those four writers and especially the influence of Ray Bradbury on your writing. I think what Bradbury most influenced about my work was he showed you that you could care about style, you could care about language, you could care about imagery, you could make the writing almost like poetry. And it wouldn't inhibit the reading. It will draw you in even more. And the perfect example of this, I think, is something we could this way comes, which is a novel that is almost continuous poetry if you actually examine it. It's beautiful prose. And the characters of the boys who are central to it really are powerful. But none of that story would have drawn you so fast, so completely through it, if not for that poetic approach to language, imagery, metaphor, simile, that many people have burned out of their approach to fiction because they've bought in to the Hemingway model. Now, what I've often said is Hemingway was brilliant, but he was a genius. But the difference is, yes, Hemingway strips out metaphor, simile. He gets you down to the bare bones, but there's something else going on in Hemingway that is much more difficult to achieve. And just going to minimalist style doesn't have that. Hemingway was a genius. The rest of us aren't necessarily geniuses. We can imitate that style, but it's not going to work for us the way it worked for him. Bradbury gave me that sense that you could really visualize through poetic language to an extent that made the whole thing like a movie to a reader. And that was what I got from him most profoundly, I think. Also, the great heart that's in Bradbury is something that I realized you could bring into a suspenseful story. They don't all have to be dark, and cold, and nihilistic. Then from Heinlein, it was that compulsive pacing that I know it had. Plus, when Heinlein wanted you to find a character formidable, he really knew how to write a character like Jubal Harshaw in Stranger in a Strange Land. So that you know, okay, here's somebody who really knows how the world works and can kick butt. And Jubal is an old man in that story, but it's still fundamental to making that book work. Then Theodore Sturgeon was also a poetic writer, but he also had weird, weird ideas. And the ideas he came up with were often so weird that you sometimes thought, I'm surprised he even got away with that in the world of science fiction and horror. But he did, and that was instructive to me. Don't hold your imagination back. You can go places you wouldn't think you can, because this guy did it and made a life's work out of it. And then finally, Jack Douglas. Nobody probably knows who Jack Douglas was anymore. 
he was a TV writer. He wrote for comedies, sitcoms, but he also wrote these books that were quirky, strange little books where every page or two was a chapter had nothing to do with anything else. They weren't novels. They were books of absurdist humor. And one of them was called Never Trust a Naked Bus Driver. Another one was called My Brother Was an Only Child. When I was in high school, these books put me on the floor. I'd laugh out loud. And he helped shape my sense of humor, I think. In fact, I couldn't go as crazy as Jack Douglas goes, but I am able to go more places in the humor in books like One Door Away from Heaven or in Life Expectancy, for instance, to places I wouldn't have gone if I hadn't had the model of Jack Douglas. And he eventually wrote a number of memoirs about his wife and his children and the pack of wolves they lived with, which was true. And those showed me how you could use humor in interesting ways. So it goes back to what I was saying, read everything, because you'd be surprised where you get inspiration from. Well, I love that if I heard you correctly, you were saying you got the poetry from Bradbury, you got this incredible fierce pacing from Heinlein, from Sturgeon, you get the weirdness and Douglas gave you the humor. And that is really you. I mean, that's like, if this were a DNA and we got to have the code of Dean Koontz, that's what shows up. And then on top of it, there's just a joy. You come to these, every story you can tell, like you're on the floor laughing years ago, reading Jack Douglas. And just like I knew that you were giggling when you came up with a name, Dirty Harry Dry Clean. (laughs) And that scene is just super fun. And I'm wondering if it's very conscious on your part where you want to take us to places, there's enough of the weirdness, but you're balancing it and enough of the darkness that you're balancing it with the humor and then the starkness sometimes of the humanity, right? Just what you learned from your father and what you were dealing with as a child then you balance it out with heart and you're assembling all this. It's this incredible aggregation of all these elements that show up in your books. And it's not a repetitive story. It's elements that we come to love and come to expect and come to hope we get more of in the next book. And I'm just curious if you've ever thought of it like that, that this is kind of what shows up every single time I sit down and write a book. They show up in different mixes. Some books maybe won't have the humor, but they'll have all the rest of it. Some books might not be quite as dark as others, but yeah, those are the elements. And it really comes out of stopping to think what you think about life. I'm an optimist. I'm a reckless optimist, actually. I like people very much. I despair sometimes about the level of nihilism that exists in our culture where there is a a sense that nothing has meaning and life has no meaning. I write in rebellion against that. Everything we do in life has meaning and it affects other people profoundly. And I wrote an entire novel, talk about a concept that you thought you couldn't handle. I wrote a novel called From the Corner of His Eye. That was inspired by the thought in quantum mechanics in modern physics, there is this thing called spooky effect at a distance. One example of it is you can have two experiments of identical nature going on at opposite ends of the country. And if the scientists have talked to each other first and know they're doing the experiment, something that happens in a lab on one coast will affect the experiment in the lab on the other coast. Another way of pulling the mind toward this is quantum mechanics will tell you that a butterfly effect, a flight of butterflies in Japan will affect the weather in Chicago. I love quantum mechanics and science. And as you let this percolate into your head, you realize everything means something. And I wanted to write a novel from the corner of his eye that said that truth about the interconnectedness of nature, about everything at the opposite ends of the universe that affect each other, then human relationships are the same way. Every act we commit has effects that we never are privy to because it echoes through, we do something mean to somebody, that echoes in their behavior, and perhaps they do something mean to somebody else, or perhaps they go out of the way to be kinder because they don't want to be like you. As a consequence, we don't understand how everything we do in our life affects millions of lives we'll never know. 
And I wanted to write a novel that showed that. And I thought, I can't do this. For quite a while, I thought I can't do it. And I didn't think about it until one day I just said, write the first page. And you know this too, I'm sure you've taught this. Perseverance, just determination is one of the biggest factors in succeeding at this because you're always going to be thinking it can't be done. So I wrote the first page and what do you know? It turned out to be a quarter of a million word novel, probably one of the three best reviews of novels I've ever read, written. I think I only had three bad reviews out of 150 or so. And they were people who didn't get it. <laughs> so, so it didn't matter. I love quantum mechanics and what you're mentioning here. And I feel like in the world that you're creating and your stories have so much humanity in them. And Ray Bradbury always talked about that. It's not about the Martians. It's not about those mm-hmm. other things. It's about people. Storytelling, great storytelling is about people and our relationships to each other. And this delicate interconnectedness and the delicacy of that, that when you approach it as a storyteller, as a human that is humbled by this connection. The point of the storytelling is to continuously remind us of that connection. It's huge. It's what's fueled your entire career of coming to it with so much humanity in the absolute opposite of nihilism. I love that you're fighting nihilism because what you're fighting is apathy. If you look at a map of human consciousness and the way that they actually measure emotion, apathy is at the bottom. It's like 50. And they talk about joy as being one of the highest resonance that we can possibly put into the world. And so when these experiments are happening in one lab and the other, and they're affecting it, or the butterflies in Japan are affecting weather patterns across the world, how can it not be, right? And so many people don't want to live with that reality because it would make them too responsible (laughs) for their thoughts and their actions. And what you're doing in a story and what's just so beautiful about the work that you've brought to us in your lifetime to date is constantly reminding us of the connection. So I'm glad that you're fighting the nihilism. When you were at Shippensburg in your senior year, you won the Atlantic Monthly Fiction Competition, which seemed to catalyze your career, if I understand it correctly. How did you learn about the competition? And would you please read the first line or first paragraph of that short story if you have it with you? I know we talked about it previously. We, we talked about it and I forgot to bring it in. So it's not that powerful. But okay, let sure. me tell you how that was. They mentally did a college fiction writing competition every year. And I didn't know about it and I didn't submit to it. I was on the uh, literary magazine staff at the college And I had a professor of mine who read the story, it was in the magazine, and submitted it without my knowledge. And it was a prize winner short story. And I've often said the best thing about it was, well, two best things about it. The Atlantic Monthly gave you a certificate and printed a little booklet with the winners in it, and that was it. But I also turned around in my senior year and sold the story for $50 to a, a national magazine. That was a lot more money than now. And to me, it was a fortune because paperback books were 50 cents, 60 cents. I could buy a lot of books with $50. And that was more important to me than the thing from Atlantic Monthly. But the other thing that came out of that was I was sort of an indifferent student because I was often bored. So I wasn't always reading what I was supposed to be reading. I was reading other things and faking it in class. And I was coasting along getting acceptable. But when that happened at the end of my junior year, then in my senior year, I was the toast of the English department. I could get nothing but straight A's. <laughs> and it was fabulous. Uh, I wasn't working any harder. I wasn't doing anything different. But suddenly, wow, because that was the first time anybody at that college had ever placed in the Atlantic Monthly competition. I know. And Atlantic Monthly is pretty big street creds, right? (laughs) Especially for a college student. That must have just given you so much confidence to continue. How did you proceed after that in terms of really committing to it and pursuing it? Well, my self-doubt always was and still is strong. So I didn't immediately say, oh, wow, I'm going to be a great writer. It never crossed my mind, particularly It was at that point I realized after I sold the story, I realized, oh, 
I guess people are paid for this. For some reason, it didn't cross my mind before that. And there might be a way to make a living at this. And I enjoy it so much. And who gets to make a living at what they enjoy? That's a rare thing. And to take such delight and still make a good living at it. But myself, that was terrible. And in college, I milked that award for all I could get. But once I was out of college, it didn't give me any confidence. I just kept writing and fumbling that way forward. Because I'd read so much science fiction, I was writing science fiction and a lot of it until one day I realized this isn't where my heart is and I'm never going to be good at this because I don't care about it as a writer. I cared about it as a reader, as a kid, but now it doesn't speak to me. And then I wrote a comic novel. Then I started in suspense, but then I was writing mainstream suspense, but gradually I fumbled my way to it. But from the day I became a full-time writer, so I ever had the best of was, I think it was uh, 15 or 16 years. So those years were years of great self-doubt. And that's why I always say you have to just stay on it. You have to have faith in you're going to get there sooner or later. And in my case, I can't do anything else. So if this didn't work, I would have been a homeless man. Yeah, I think a lot of us say that if you're starting out the gates now, it's even harder because of the expectations that they're putting on all the authors to build a platform and do their own marketing. And that's another conversation. But I want to get back to this. You spent 15, 16 years just doing the work, paying your dues. You're there in the trenches, learning the craft, fumbling, as you say, in the midst of navigating and managing your own self-doubt, which I think is so honest for most authors. It's a scary endeavor, right? (laughs) To start down a path and not know Okay, especially when you approach the storytelling in the way you do, which I really appreciate, where it seems so authentic and so organic, where you're letting the humanity of that character come to you. And then you're going to see if it takes your hand and takes you someplace. And then at a certain point, it gains momentum and you realize there's a cause and effect and a cause and effect and a cause and effect. And you're looped in now. There's movement and it is going somewhere. And I'm sure there's like a larger concept that's happening at the same time. But That's 16 years, you know, and so many people want to get there so fast these days. You're saying perseverance, absolutely. This diet of reading. I mean, I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, can I help them write a book? And they don't read. I ask them, what are you reading? So I don't know how you can do this without coming to it, at least with an appreciation and respect of everything that came before you. It's like the nutrition. I don't know what people feed themselves to actually to write if they don't come to it the way you do. But at a certain point, after 15, 16 years, an algorithm kind of comes, it's natural. You start to realize, okay, this is going to work. This is not going to work. This is right. Even though you still have the uncertainty of, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen in this moment in the scene, which is different what we talked about Mm -hmm. prior. What is your everyday writing like for people who really want to understand what does it take for someone like you over the course of almost 50 some years that you've been writing more than on average two books a year. And it's extraordinary. How do you do this? I know that you know this, but I have to repeat it to you and hold the mirror up to you. If this were like a scatter plot, you're over here. This is the line. You're over here. <laughs> Thank you for showing us almost like a superhuman storytelling production. And I know in, from what I read in prior years, like your publisher would say to you, like you have to write under a pen name and that's another story, but how do you do this? What is your day-to-day so that discipline is just ingrained in your being? That's strange because I was a slacker as a kid. And when I found work I loved, it's not always like work. It's always hard. It's always strains your mental capacities to do this, but at the same time, it's play. And that makes a difference. But I get up in the morning at 5.30. I uh, take the dog out, have my breakfast at the desk always. And I'm writing by 6.37. I have a shower in there. <laughs> and and I'm uh, writing by 7. On an ideal day, I write from 7 until 4, 4.30. And I never rarely eat lunch because my mind gets foggy after I eat. And so I have breakfast and dinner. And I do that at least six days a week. If I'm on a book and it's getting toward the end of the book, I may go to seven. 
it's nothing for me to work a 70-hour week. And I revise, revise, revise page by page. I don't write a first draft and go back and clean it up. But I write each page over and over until I've got it as smooth as I can get it, which also slows me down and gives me subconscious time to think not up on the forebrain thinking, back of the brain. And then you get to things in a novel that should have been a problem that you've been worried about how you're going to deal with this. And you get there and you've solved it unconsciously because we're writing this way. It works for me. I don't know if it works for anybody else, but that's how I've gotten here. It's a very graceful way of allowing versus pushing versus trying to solve it, quote unquote, right? I don't think that most writers who begin this understand that there is this subtle realm you have to exist in where, like you said, you're revising. And I'm curious if at the beginning of the day, you are reading the pages you wrote before, right? To kind of do your tweaking and feel, okay, this is better than yesterday. I'm getting there. And then that subconscious thing is happening where you're ready to start the next scene. You can segue into it, right? And do you leave that scene open so that the next day you come in based on the energy of where you're at? Are the transitions hard for you? Well, some days, yes, I'll end it. I would have time to finish the chapter or the scene, but I'll end it unfinished so I can come back the next day and pick up something already in progress. There are days where I can't get up and leave that scene unfinished. I have to button it up. And what you said, coming back the next day to go over it and proofread it and tweak it as a way to lead into that day's production, yeah, that gets me back into it. Then there are days when you don't get very much written and other days when you get more than you think you possibly could. I've had days where I got so many pages that I think it must be terrible. I can't write 12 pages today and it'd be good. And then I'll come back the next day and there it is. It's maybe better in the days where I got four pages. I don't understand that, but it has something to do with being in the flow, as they say, or as they say, being in the zone, where you can do no wrong. And I believe that's when your subconscious is really work. And you can't make it happen. As soon as you start thinking about it too much, it stops. And that 12-page day never happens. You have to just let it happen. There's all kinds of ways it works. Well, can you give me an example, like in just a ratio of those days, like a 12 page day, like how often do you hit a 12 page day where not not that often? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. It's important for listeners to understand that what Dean is expressing here is it's the magic point. And I think it's the reason why we're addicted to the creativity because it's where time stops. Right. And Mm -hmm. you say that you're in flow and it's literally almost like, yes, you are there. You're physically there. Right. But you're transported. It's like we're intuition and all these things where, yes, we're a body, we have fingers at a keyboard, but there's something else at play here, which is such the mystery of this. And why I think when you hit that, it's like the jackpot, you know, it's like a jackpot day, which a 12 page day is so rare. I mean, my head hurts thinking about it, but I totally get when it does happen. I'm curious too, if a lot of it is when you hear the music of the dialogue, because you talk a lot about how dialogue works for you to reveal so much about the character, you know, revealing the character's attitude. And when we understand their thoughts, we really can understand so much about them. And it's not telling us like all the details of their backstory. It's how they're responding in the moment and how are they making sense of it? And so that dialogue, I'm curious on those 12 page days, Is it like music that you're listening to and it's just flying out of you? It tends to happen more toward the latter third of a novel where you've got your momentum going. And I can remember way back where wrote Watchers. Well, it actually happened twice within a couple of days each other. I stayed at the keyboard for 36 hours because it was going so well. I just didn't sleep. And I got more pages than I can't even remember how many and the first time I got it, I was exhausted when it came out. Jerry would come in and say, I'd grab a bite of food. I'd take a half hour to have dinner with her and then back to it because it was so exciting how well it was going. And then I just crashed. And I think I slept 12 hours, never got out of bed, got myself back and thought, okay, now I got to read it. It has to be terrible. And I didn't find in that product from that 36 hours, which was something like, I don't know, 25 pages or something like that. I didn't find one typo. 
Now, start, think about that. There was nothing I wanted to change. There was no typo. There's something in us that's so more powerful than anything we normally get in touch with. That that is mysterious. And that exactly what you said. It's a joy that you want to have again that's incomparable. And it's that moment where you say to yourself sometimes, this is not just me. There is a writer named Dennis Johnson who's in the literary spectrum of things who I think has said pretty much the same thing. When it's going beyond your power to explain to yourself, it's not because you're such a genius. It's because that's the moment you're linked with the higher power. I totally 100% believe this. Absolutely. I think that's where there's the stickiness and the reason why you have such a huge body of work. It's where you're in service to the story and the story is a vehicle for something that's trying to come through you. And this is the great courage of a writer to let it in. And when you do, it's like that reward. You don't write expecting it. You're writing with the incredible gratitude of in rare moments it happens. You're like, okay, it's just a reminder. It's just a reminder that it's not about you, right? It's two things from that one. You said earlier about standing, essentially standing on the shoulders of generations who've written before us. And that is something that I think that any writer, if they're going to be good for long term, needs to be aware of. There has to be a sense of gratitude for what brought you to this point. And it's all that you read. It's all that's been published. It's all that you stand on. And then the other side of it is just the second thing we're talking about. There is something more to this than just earning a living or just cobbling a story together. When you're really singing, when it's really coming through you, it's about something mysterious. And I've had mysterious things happen in my life. I just have a book coming out later this year where the subject is synchronicity or extreme coincidences. And the book is filled with real-life extreme coincidences. To think about the world as a quantum mechanics world, there are no coincidences. Everything happens because of other things that happen. Once you get that, and that's flowing through you, I think you approach stories in a different way, in a more holistic way. It's the moment where you put, this sounds very strange, it's the moment, you may still have ambition, you have goals, you have all this, but when you're writing, that has to go away. When you're writing, it has to be not how this is going to sell or yeah. not what people are going to think of me because of it. It just has to be about this thing. It's you and this story and you're falling away into it. And that's when it works. It's like the big surrender. If you surrender inside the story, you surrender to the story, you surrender to the process. That's what you will end up with is you'll end up with the magic. There's a lot of writers out there, they're just forcing it. And I don't know if they've experienced what you're talking about. When you surrender as you do, right? I mean, you, of course you have your goals and everything, but that's very Newtonian. But when you move over to the quantum side of this and actually allow that to guide you, it's really humbling. This is the thing to always keep in mind, I think, when you're struggling to learn how to write fiction. In real life, we're not in charge. To an extent, we are. We can make decisions that lead to a better life or a worse life. But in reality, fate happens, stuff happens, and we don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow, an hour from now. When you realize that's the way I think it's best to approach fiction, not to plot it out so much, not to think you're totally in control of everything that's going to happen in that story. Because in reality, if you're just writing organically, things are going to happen to you during the course of writing a novel that will become part of that novel. And if you're freezing life experience out of the journey and sticking to an outline and not letting it change, you're not letting in all of the stuff you're learning about life as you're writing the novel itself. So yeah, you have to surrender. You have to say, I'm writing a novel. I'm the god of this story, but I'm not in charge of it. And that's what I mean when I say you have to give the characters free will. You have to let surprise come and you have to let them find their way. And it's a mysterious and strange thing, but it happens when you let it. 
And I think what you're allowing for too is that constant rate of surprise. And that is the hallmark of all of your books and the entire canon of work that you've given us to date is that wonderful surprise that we're going to get. When you've been this prolific and the stories just seem to keep coming to you and you're in that special groove that is because of the humility and because of the surrender and because of what you know is deeper behind this whole process, do you give yourself a break and how do you recover between stories? Because you're inhabiting worlds. So do you ever need to like, just brush it off? I mean, it's like an actor taking on one role after the other, after the other, after the other, but for authors, we're taking on every role of every character we create. So how do you recover? I mean, this is like an endurance sport. So how do you get refreshed? I don't travel. So I don't go places, I don't fly, that's what I should say. So I don't go to exotic places. I'm a homebody. And I think that's because growing up, I didn't really have a stable home. And now that I have a stable home, I don't care about much more other than that. There are things I like. I don't know. I'm sort of lost between books. There isn't a lot of time between books. And usually life fills up. You know, you see friends tasks come you have to deal with. And I just find dealing with life day by day between books relaxes me enough that I'm ready to start the next book. In fact, I'm eager because real life has more vicissitudes in it than does writing. I understand the safety of fiction. It's better to be in a world that you're in charge of some of the decisions that happen inside that world. And there may be better decisions that are made by you than others in the outer world. I am so grateful for the time and I could keep talking to you about craft and your incredible dedication to this, but I want to free you up so you can have some time to recover before your next maybe 12 page day. Maybe that's tomorrow. I don't know. And to spend time with your wife and your dog. This is just an extraordinary conversation and I am so grateful. Thank you for reminding us about the importance of continuing to read. If we want to write, we have to keep reading and really understanding the voices and the nuance of everyone that's come before us. Thank you for fighting the nihilism. Thank you for being such a humanitarian in your stories and for just the joy that you bring to this and providing us with such delight year after year after year. It's extraordinary. Well, thank you, Ali. And I have to say that was a fabulous interview. It went places I've never been led before by an interviewer. So it was incredibly thoughtful and interesting. I'm very glad I did this. Thank you. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm the host and producer, Holly Payne, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like page one, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope page one helps you discover something you'll love too. If you want to learn more about my writing coaching or books, you can find me at hollylynnpain.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Holly Lynn Payne. That's H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E, hollylynnpayne.com. Thank you.